prices in the uh, basket. Okay. So we were discussing the hierarchy of souls. Right? So the basic the basic context here is that the soul is literally a piece of God. And since there's only one kind of God, one would expect that there would only be one kind of soul. But in fact, how many kinds of souls are there? Infinite. Myriads and myriads ad infinitum. Okay? And we're and there are these are these are not just different, but they're actually ranked hierarchically. And we're going to discuss three main, three of the basic hierarchies. So the first hierarchy we discussed was over the generations, over like the entire history of the Jewish people. That some souls are like the head and the brain, whereas some souls, like the souls of our generation, are like the souls of the feet. Now, is the head slash brain superior to the feet in every sense? No. No. Okay. But in the relevant senses, it's superior. So... In, how is the head slash brain superior to the feet? So we went through number one. If you sever, God forbid, the feet from the head, who dies? The feet. Number two, who controls whom? Do the feet control the head or the head control the feet? Head controls the feet. And number three, who is experiencing the feet? Are the feet experiencing themselves or is really the head experiencing the feet? The foot part of the head experiences the foot, not the foot itself. And last, the value, the moral significance of the foot is comes right comes really from its attachment to the head. Because if you look at the foot on its own, it's really like an animal. There's no difference. Right? It's the fact that this foot is connected to the head of a person that gives it greater importance. Okay? So those four things were then parallel with the forefathers, Moshe, versus our souls. If our souls would, God forbid, be dis- dis- disconnected from the souls of the patriarchs and Moshe, whose souls would die? Ours. Ours. Which is sad. Number two. Which souls are providing instructions for which souls on how to live? I vote for us. Right. This is expressed in the way that our, with our sages say that the Lives, the actions of our forefathers serve as an indication, a sign for the children. Right? That's why we spend a lot of time learning about the forefathers and their lives and Moshe and his life, etc., etc., because there's actually the model that all of our lives are built off of. Third, if we are having godly experiences, or if our godly soul is experiencing godliness in any way, is it really our soul itself that experiences godliness? No. It's the souls of the patriarchs somehow like vicariously experiencing via our soul. Okay? And the fact that our souls are, are, are godly beings as opposed to just creations is because they're inherently godly or because they're attached to the souls of the patriarchs in motion. So, right. And you see that from the fact that we start our prayers, we, speak of, we, we always speak about how we are the descendants of the patriarchs. And we don't say that, I'm so godly, so listen to me. 
Okay. Can I ask though, in you can ask. Chinese? Yes. Thank you. Um, the whole like, that whole chunk of like, thank you for giving me my soul back. Mm-hmm. That's my God, my soul, you trusted me, no upload. Like a lot of our Judaism seems to not directly involve upload. Um. So. This is not convenient because this is a mafaser, but I don't know. Would you like a second? Yeah, that would probably be faster to do this. We'll see which one works faster. So, okay. so, set aside the Modani for a second, I'll tell you why. But the actual prayer that, was, that we're obligated to say, thanking God for returning our soul, it starts off by saying, my God, but when we conclude the blessing, we say, my God and the God of my forefathers. The blessing Elokai Neshama Shasatabi ends off by saying, I give thanks to before you, Hashem Elokai, God, my God, Vilakevais, and God of my forefathers. Okay. Um, so, just in terms of the, that, you know, Modani does not mention our forefathers, but the actual prayer for thanking God does mention the forefathers, not each one individually, but as a general thing. Um, Moda'ani is actually a relatively recent introduction to the Siddur. Um, and it's more supposed to reflect um, one's initial almost semi-conscious awareness of God. Not a thought-out awareness of God. So although I have not seen this anywhere, this is my personal thought, and I want to be clear that when I say things that are my personal thought, you can take them or leave them. My personal thought is drawing these distinctions and the complexity between my God and the God of my forefathers and how that all works, that kind of an awareness comes after some reflection. Whereas Modani is not supposed to indicate any kind of reflective awareness of God, but just this initial semi-conscious awareness. That's my sense of it. Okay. Um, generally, though, as, as, a, as, as a basis principle, um, the Entire Judaism is centered around the covenant that Hashem made with our forefathers um, and the fulfillment of that through the Exodus of Eden. In fact, the very fact that Hashem gave us the Torah, this is just an important thing to note. Um, everyone knows the story of the Exodus? Okay. Like, what would be a one or two line summary of the whole story of the Exodus? Mm, that's not a story. That's in, like, like, a story needs, like, like, oh, the beginning something, yeah. Like, what's the story? Egypt. And God took us out. And God took us out. Okay, so that's actually wrong. Okay. Okay. The story, the, 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 story, the story goes like this. God promised to Avram that his descendants would be enslaved in a land that wasn't theirs. And then he would redeem them in order to give them the Torah. And then God kept his promise. And if you actually go through the Haggadah, that's actually the story. This is very important is that this, the story of the Exodus 
is, is, is the second half of what begins in, in Genesis, in Bereshus, right? So it's Hashem fulfilling his covenant that he made with Avram. So the whole idea that God like took us out of Egypt, and that is actually following through on the relationship with the forefathers, which means the receiving of the Torah is falling through the relationship with the forefathers. Getting the land is falling through the relationship with the forefathers. All of it's falling through the relationship with the forefathers. So much so that even at the night of the Seder, there's an opinion that we really should not be talking about the Exodus, we should be talking about God's special relationship with Avraham. That originally Avraham was born to a family of idolaters and then he developed a special relationship with God. We end up doing both, by the way. Yeah, we do. We do both because we follow both opinions. But there's a view that says that you actually don't need to mention the Exodus at all. Because that's not the main point. The main point is the covenant with Avraham. The Exodus is just the following through of that. There's another view that says when you have to mention the Exodus, we follow both opinions. So I'm saying even these fundamental things like the Exodus, the giving of the Torah, they're really not isolated events. They're, they're, they're the fulfillment of the relationship with the forefathers. Okay. Um, so we don't really have Judaism that's isolated from that. That doesn't mean that there isn't an individual element as well, that we discussed last class. Okay, fine. Okay, today we're going to look at, there's going to be three, and he's going to go over three hierarchies. So one hierarchy was over the generations, over history. Um, now we're going to do the second hierarchy between souls. So we are on page seven or eight, or eight or nine. Seven or, those are the only possibilities. Okay. All right. Okay. So I'm not going to. Um, I'm not going to give any introduction. We're just going to read. We're at the line that says near the top of the left-hand column. So in every generation. So in every generation, there are the leaders of the Jews. Okay. Now, the, in the translation, it says leaders, but in the original Hebrew, it actually uses the word heads. Okay. Of the Jews, whose souls are in the category of head and brain in comparison with those of the masses and the ignorant. How does that make you feel? The masses and the ignorant. No, we're the masses. We're the masses and the ignorant. We're the masses and the ignorant. Perfect. Okay. So, so what is so what is, so what is he saying here? Is that this idea that there's some head thing called the head souls and the foot souls, as we've been discussing last week? That's not just over the entire history of the Jewish people. But that actually takes place localized within every generation, within every era of Jewish history. There are some Jews whose souls are the heads and some souls who are, relatively speaking, the feet. Okay. Now, um, what does that mean? That means that there are some souls that are, there are some people alive in every generation who are more like the biblical figures, the, the patriarchs, the matriarchs, Moshe, Aaron, etc., than they are like us, even though they live in the same time as us. Okay? Now, that, I, that is an idea that many people find very uncomfortable because if you talk about you know, these figures in the long-forgotten past, you know, once there was a man named Avram, once there was a woman named Sarah, and they were these... Okay, but, but that's thousands of years ago, right? That's, that's not necessarily somebody that I would bump into. 
But if you, but what this is saying now is that that I, dynamic exists not just over the entire course of Jewish history, but in every era, you also have head souls and foot souls. Yes. How do you, how do we define generations? Ah, oh, very good. Very good. So I'm going to give you two examples um, where we see this idea very clearly. We have something called the generation of the desert. Okay? Now, what defined the generation of the desert? They were in the desert. They were in the desert. Nope. Because there were people in the desert who were not part of the generation of the desert. What defines them is not that they were in the desert, but that they stayed in the desert. Meaning that these people died in the desert. They did not go into the Holy Land. So the Jews left Egypt. They got the Torah. And then what happened? Wandered. They wandered around 40 years until all, uh, until all the men died off. And then the next generation went into the Holy Land. Okay, now... There's deeper reasons. There's deeper reasons. The, the fact that they stayed in the desert is not just a technicality. But I don't want to go into that right now. If you're interested, there's, if you're interested, there's, um, in Chassidus it's discussed, and the, the discourses on the spies talk about it. My mom talked about the spies. But technically speaking, they were the same people who came out of Egypt. They were the same people who came out of Egypt. Okay. Um, they're known by other names also. Okay. Now, Here's the interesting thing, okay? Who was Moshe the leader of? Which generation? Was he the leader of the generation of the people that died in the desert, or was he the leader of the generation of the people that entered the land of Israel? Died in the desert. Okay? Now, what that means is that in a certain sense, all the people who are of the next generation, even, they were not really Moshe's generation. Even though, you know, he was still alive when they were alive. And when all of his generation died off, Moshe was still alive for a little bit. Right? Um, because really what the cutoff point is, is in terms of the mission. The mission of Moshe and his generation was the Jewish people should leave... leave um, Egypt, receive the Torah, build the Mishkan, build the tabernacle. That's it. The idea of conquering the land of Canaan and turning into the land of Israel, that's a totally different idea, a different generation with a different leader. Okay? So from here we see that the idea of generation is not a, merely a, a biological thing, and it's not even amount of time. It really has to do with more of what is the thrust of this era? What are the Jewish people as an entire entity trying to accomplish and the leaders kind of switch as that changes so in theory like one could be in a generation and not know what generation they're in it's like whatever defines a generation hasn't happened yet right okay. right um, you actually see this because it says that, that if Noah had been in the generation of Avraham then he would have been considered a nobody except Noah was alive when Avraham was alive so the generation of Avram was not when Avram was alive, but when Avram started like doing his thing, and and um, if you put 
Noach in the context of Avram, it changes, but they could still be alive at the same time. So generations is more like, think of it stages. If, if history is moving towards Mashiach, then every time we have a different stage, and that's usually identified by having different leaders, then we have a different generation, which then leads to my second example. There was one of the leaders of Jewish people was a man named Shimshon in Hebrew, Samson in English. You've heard of him? Yeah? Okay. What did he look like? Long hair. He did have long hair. What else did he look? He was strong. I asked you how he looked. You ever know? <laughs> he was not actually. He was a cripple. Contrary to popular belief, he was a yes. He was a cripple. He was a. He was. He was. You, you know that. You know that. You know that. You know that. That 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 guy in school that like is way too skinny and like can't seem to like you know trips over himself mm-hmm. like that you know that yeah that that was Shimshon. But he was incredibly, he was miraculously strong. In other words, where, where, where most people prophecy manifests as having unnatural knowledge, his prophecy manifested as having unnatural strength. That's why it always speaks of his strength coming because the spirit of Hashem came over him. He was not actually a strong, buff person. Okay. So, Shimshon ruled the Jewish people for 20 years. But we have other sources that say that he ruled the people for 40 years. How's that reconciled? So one of the answers that's given is because even though he physically died, his leadership, his spirit, what he was trying to bring, the, his stage of the Jewish people was still in effect. The Jewish people still were under his influence, under his guidance, even though he was no longer physically present. And so the generation that follows Shimshon really takes place 20 years after his death. That's when we say it's a new generation. So if we take these two examples, and you can use other examples, um, generations are really viewed in terms of a, a combination between leadership slash mission, which means the length of generation can be very short. There, there, there was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Has anyone heard of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai? He was a, one of the Tanayim. He was one of the sages of the Mishnah. So he, had a, he lived a very long time. But his generation is very short. Um, Basically, the, the way it used to work is in the high court, the Sanhedrin, there was a, the, the highest office was called the Nasi, which loosely translates as the prince. And the most famous, one of the most famous people who ever became Nasi was named was Hillel. Has anyone heard of Hillel? Once or twice, yeah, famous guy. So Hillel was such a good Nasi that after 40 years, the sages decided that they were going to vote his family into the office in perpetuity. So basically, Hillel's son took over. So his name was Shimon. No, yeah, his name was Shimon. And then Shimon died, his son took over, and his name was Rabbi Gamliel. And then when he died, his son took over, and his name was Rabban Shimon. Okay? And he was killed by the Romans, if I remember correctly, shortly, a few years before the temple was destroyed. And his son, Rabbi Gamliel, was too young to take over the leadership. If I remember correctly, I might be getting some of the details wrong. So basically, they had an issue who should be Nasi, and they decided, well, Hillel still has this disciple who's still alive, and we'll give it to him. And so he was the leader of the Sanhedrin. He was the leader of the Jewish court. He was the leader of the whole Jewish people for about the 10 plus years that overlapped the destruction of the Second Temple. And he died, like, I think within a decade after the Temple was destroyed. And by that time, Rabbi Gamliel was old enough to take over, and he took over the leadership. So even though he was this was a man who, was, who lived a very long life, but his generation is limited to a very short period of time, which is the era of the, destru- the period of the destruction of the Second Temple. And in fact, a lot of things we do in Judaism 
nowadays are because of him, because he was the one that kind of kept Judaism from collapsing. Just to give you a concrete example, we all know the myths of Lul of an Esrug. Yeah, shaking Lul of Esrug, okay. So, biblically speaking, that mitzvah only applies on the first day of Sukkot, if you're not in the temple. So why do we do it all seven days? Well, really not seven, because we don't do it on Shabbos. Why do we do it every day of Sukkot? Because when the temple is destroyed, in order that we shouldn't forget how it's practiced in the temple, he instituted that, the, that we now will practice outside the temple the way it was done in the temple to remember the temple. So there's a, and he actually instituted a lot of things like that to kind of preserve Judaism to some way the way it was in the temple and hold things together. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. He just decided. Yeah. I mean, he in the court. He, put it, he, he proposed the idea and the court ruled on it and they voted. Yochanan or Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Wait. Okay, I mean, you not liking that is not a question. That's a statement of opinion. Like, I can't help you with that. If you say you don't understand that, that I can help you with. Okay, this is not the topic for right now, but I'm just going to throw this out there. As, well, I'm going to tell you in a second. But everyone's familiar with the United States government, that it has basically, I mean, I'm not sure everyone here is not American, but you've heard of the United States government? Yes. Okay, in the United States government, in the United States government, there are three branches of the government. Okay. That's right. Okay. Now, it's important to understand this. Judiciary means that they decide how the law should be applied. Okay? So you have a situation, and the question is, okay, well, we know what the law says, but it's unclear as to how the law actually applies in this circumstance, right? That's, that's, that's the idea of the judiciary. Okay? Um, and that could be either because the facts are unclear or because, the, or because what the law would say about these facts is unclear. Like the law could be ambiguous. Okay, so that's one issue. Then there's another thing, which is the executive, which is who actually ensures that the laws are in fact carried out, who makes sure that the laws are obeyed and things happen the way they're supposed to. Right? That's called the executive. Okay, and that runs the administration and things like that. And then there's a question of legislative, which is who decides what the laws are. Okay, now... People, this might come as a shock to you, but the rabbis have three powers. Legislative, executive, and, and judicial, which means it is not only up to the rabbis to decide how the law applies, it is not only up to the rabbis to ensure that, to make sure that the law is followed, it is also up to the rabbis to make the law. Make the law. Now, are they constrained? <laughs> yes. Okay, there are rules for this, okay? But that's just, it's just like, like, there's no point in, 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 in like, um, what do you call it, beating around the bush or pretending that's not the case. The rabbis have the God-given power to make up laws, not just interpret the laws. Yeah. Where does it say that you're only supposed to shake it the first day? Because the verse, there's a, in the verse that says about the lulav, it says you should take the lulav and asterisk on the first day, and you should rejoice seven days. So... When, when Hashem told Moshe, what do I mean? I mean, in the temple, because it says rejoice seven days before God. So it, outside the temple, you're not, quote, before God. You take it on the first day. But if you're in the temple, you're before God, then you rejoice with it all seven days. And so in temple times, that's how it was done. If you wanted to do the mitzvah all seven days, you had to go to the temple. But the rabbis decided to not follow that part. No, the rabbis, so there's rules for this. The rabbis decided to add on the performance of the mitzvah as a commemoration of the temple. 
there's all the the, the 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 thing to realize is that the the the, the biblical law functions much more like a constitution than a law book which it sets rules and parameters for how the rabbis are supposed to work rather than actually listing out a bunch of specific things. Yeah, but I feel like sometimes the rabbis say things that contradict what the biblical law is. Right, and there's rules and for that's that. that's not an issue? Well, there are rules for The basic rule, if you want to make it in a nutshell, is that the rabbis are, are not allowed to permit, these are basic something rules, that's something that's prohibited. They are not allowed to conflate a rabbinic law with a biblical law. And they are not allowed to abolish a mitzvah permanently. That's if you had like kind of three basic rules. So they can say, we're going to forbid you from doing a mitzvah under certain circumstances, like we don't blow shofar on Shabbos, stuff like that. They can say that even the Torah allows you, permits this, we're going to ban it. Um, they can make any kind of legislation in dealing with like civil, economic, social issues that they want. Like stoning people? No. <laughs> Maybe. That's a different thing. Anyway, so they function as a constitution. <laughs> anyway, my, my point in getting is, is Rabbi Yochanan Menzake ruled the Jewish people for a very limited amount of time. He lived a very long time. He was a recognized sage for a very long period of time, but his generation is very short because we, match, we count generations based on the leadership slash era. Right. In other words, you're saying there's a tautology here. Right. I, I, I would agree with you. But what his point is, is not, it, what his point is saying is that, is that it's not the case that the only head souls are just these, you know, historical figures. In other words, every time the Jewish people progress to a new step. So we would say like this, like the Baal Shem Tov would have been such a soul. Okay. Um, and... Right now, you know, when you when you when you you know when you when you start getting onto the, the the fine details of when does a generation and when does a generation begin, so people have all sorts of you know biases on what they want to say and what they don't want to say. Okay, um, the the way the Rebbe put it is that this generation is defined by kind of like the generation that went into the land of Israel, which is that they're defined by going into the actual land and conquering it. So we're defined. Our generation is defined by actually bringing about Mashiach. Which means as long as there's no temple down the road that way, which way? Yeah, down the road that way. Until there's no temple down there with sacrifices, we're in the same generation. As what? The one. As the, right. So the the the. As the one before they went to temple. Right. In other words, if the Rebbe, the Rebbe said that our generation is the, is the generation that actually brings Mashiach, so it doesn't matter how many people live and die, so that's the same. So there could be like generations within generations. Right. Or, or or the inverse, you could have like somebody's only 10 years counts as a whole generation, like Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai. Right. That's the point I'm getting at. It is, it's not the way a dem- demographer will use the term generation. We're speaking about people giving birth. And so every time you, another, every time a child gives birth, so that's another generation, the grandchild is another generation. It doesn't work like that. Okay. Um, just to illustrate this, how many generations of Chabad Rebbes have there been? Seven. Seven, but you know that the if you count like biologically, the Rebbe is the eighth. Oh, like if you go count, if you count, because the Rebbe is descended, the, the Rebbe is descended. The altar founder Chabad is one, and then his daughter is two, 
her son is three. And you keep going down, you get to eight. But we don't count that way. We count based on the number of Rebbes that there have been, and he's the seventh Rebbe. So that's, again, illustrating that it's, that it's much more in terms of the leadership and mission rather than the biological concept. Yeah? So wait, when the Rebbe was like speaking, saying our generation is a generation to bring Mashiach, he's talking as a whole, like his generation, as well as like the Friedrich Rebbe? And, like... No, no, no. He was very clear. That he was very clear. The Friedrich Rebbe was one thing, and now they're starting something new, and this is a new thing. So he's much. separating the generations by yeah. like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now we're all... Until we bring Mashiach, one generation. That's the way the Rebbe put it. Yeah, like that. Like when the Rebbe yeah. spoke about this idea of generations, he clearly very delineated that that this generation starts with the death of the previous Rebbe and ends with the physical coming of Mashiach. Those are its bookends. Oh, wow. And so, like that's clearly how he defined it, Un- quite unambiguously. Um, going back to like Shimshon, Shimshon's generation defined as the twenty years that he ruled the Jewish people while he's physically alive, and the twenty years that they continued under his influence after he died. Moshe's generation is the people, is, is taking the people out of Egypt and bringing them to, and giving them the Torah, getting them the Torah and watching over them until they die off and then handing it off to Yeshua and the next generation. Yeah. Um, how, so this is meant to be a universal, like all Jewish people are in the same generation at any given point, right? Yes. But, I'm thinking of like the Sephardi Jews when Rabbi Badir Yosef was around, mm-hmm. which is very recent and certainly overlaps with the period that the Rebbe would define as like the generation of the Rebbe. Or how, like, I, I don't think anyone denies that Rabbi Badir Yosef was a great leader, like, just for his adat. Like, what. Okay, so here's the thing there are a few different ideas, okay, that if you hear Lubavitcher's talk, it all mixed together. And since I'm teaching you Tanya, I want to teach you Tanya. You'll notice that he says leaders in the plural. Okay. So, but he says, okay, so there's a tension, because I just said the generation is defined by the leader, right? But then he says they're leaders. Okay. So what he's talking about here is like this that in the grand cosmic scheme of like the whole history of the Jewish people, there are different generations defined by, so to speak, a singular mission that the whole Jewish people are supposed to do, embodied by a particular leader, which may or may not be obvious who that is. Like in the generation of Moshe, that was fairly obvious, but figure out that who was the generation in the medieval times is like, you know, a good guess, because you have so many famous rabbis, and there's so much disparate going on. So it's- Do we an- have like a tradition of who- we do, but it's not an ongoing tradition. So we know that, for instance, Mordechai, even though Mordechai was in the same generation as many prophets, many people were alive and great people, um, Daniel, and etc. But Mordechai, it says Mordechai was the equivalent of Moshe in his time. Um, right, during the process. So we have traditions in certain generations, but we don't have in all of them. So the generations are kind of marked by the singular leader of the generation, which may or may not be obvious who that is. It may not be obvious what that historical mission is. Some eras it was quite clear, and some eras it's not been clear. But then what it's talking about here in Tanya is not that singular leader of the generation. It's just talking about that in every generation there are several, in the plural, Jews whose souls are functionally head souls relative to that generation. So I want to use, it, I want to use, so, I mean, let's not pretend that I'm not a Lubavitcher, I'm a Lubavitcher, so let's talk about the first generation of Chabad. <laughs> we'll make it historically distant so it's less confrontational. So, 
So obviously, I'm going to tell you that the Alter Rebbe's generation, he was the like defining leader of the generation. Fine, okay. But who else was alive during the Alter Rebbe's time? Well, there was a man named Reb Zushar Anapoli, Reb Yehudaleib Cohen, Reb Nachman of Breslov, Reb Elimelech of Luzhinsk. Okay. Um, what? Nice Israel. Rebbe Levi was not alive then. Right, but I want to I want to do this. I want to do I want to do this. I want I want to do this to make a point. So I'm specifically only mentioning Hasidic Rebbe's. Okay. Um. Um. Shlomo of Karlin. Okay, and the list goes on. Now. One of the one of the things we're going to see this later on in the chapter is that to be what's called a Hasidic Rebbe, the prerequisite is that you have this kind of a head soul. Like if you want to apply for the job of Hasidic Rebbehood, you have to have a head soul, not a foot soul. So now, in the Chabad perspective, does that mean that Chabad thinks that all of those other Hasidic Rebbes weren't really Hasidic Rebbes? They were all fakers? No. no. What does that mean? That there's two distinct ideas here. There's the idea of counting generations by the leadership and the overall mission. But then there's a separate fact, which is that, that in every generation, there are several people, not necessarily one, whose souls have this different kind of relationship. Okay? And so it's important not to conflate these ideas. Okay? And sometimes, I'll be very honest with you, when Babacher speak about they'll conflate the two ideas. So there's one idea is there are, and he says in the plural, heads of the generation, meaning people whose soul relative to the other people in that same generation function like the head to the foot. We spoke about in the historical sense. There's a separate idea of the idea that the generation is one cohesive thing moving the Jewish people as an entirety forward towards Mashiach, and that's counted by you know, one central leader, which may or may not be obvious, which is a separate idea. Okay. So going back and answering your question, I make it a general rule not to pass judgment on who is a head soul and who is not a head soul. Mm-hmm. I just repeat the propaganda. Mm-hmm. So if it, we have a tradition that someone is, has this kind of a soul, then I'll say, yeah, they have a kind of soul, uncontroversially. If we don't have a tradition, I don't like to pass judgment because then that's just my biases. So, do I, so if you want people that I would say that were you know, alive in this generation that you know, uncontroversially... So the Baba Sali would be a good example. Wasn't he like a long time ago? No, Baba passed away in the 1970s. Yeah. Oh. yeah. But to like the Rebbe's time? Yeah. Who the Baba Sali. Who the Rebbe's time? Um, the Aaron Belzer. The previous Belzer. Come from like that. It comes from people who like to have, who, people who have very fanciful imaginations. Um, it's not like a baseless thing, but it's, but it's, I, I, yeah, I don't, yeah. Um, so I don't want to start getting into like, I don't want to start getting into like the tribal infighting thing, but there's no, this is not saying there was one soul who's the head of generation. No, it's saying that, that in generations who again are, are by this more central leader. Okay. A way of thinking about this and is actually explained to Kabbalah is that every generation is much is is every generation has um, kind of like an org chart. A what? An org chart. In an organization, you have an org chart. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Oh. So you have like... Sorry? Organization structure. Yeah. So it's like 
you have you have you have one you have one central node, right? Which yeah. the person let's say runs the whole company. Right, let's say the CEO. And then you have like there's the vice president of marketing and the vice president of product design and the vice president, right? And then under that you have an under that you have an under that you have an under right? You know what I'm talking about? Or like the government, you have the president and under the president are the secretaries and under the secretaries are the undersecretaries and blah 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 blah. Okay. Um, so the 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 head souls are all heads relative to all the other people, the as he calls them, the masses and the ignorant. Such a pleasant mm-hmm. term. I'll talk later about why they're called the masses and the ignorant. Um, but they all what heads and relatives. But they're all heads relative to that. But within that, there is some kind of a structure to them. Um, and that structure is kind of a, is, you know, it's like there's so there's kind of like subspheres within subspheres within subspheres, and it's all within one larger framework. Yeah. Um. I don't know if it's like too far off, but when the Rebbe... We are going very far off today, so it's okay. I know. Between the Briefer Rebbe and the Rebbe, when there was controversy about who would be the next Rebbe, um, and people were talking about the Rashad, right, with his brother-in-law? Yeah, the older brother-in-law, did, yeah. Did people, like, ever explicitly say, like, they didn't think that the Rashad had this kind of a soul? Or, or did people not go as so far as to attack his soul? <sighs> you're saying if you want to be a Hasidic Rebbe, you have to have that soul. Do people like generally agree that he may well have that soul? He just wasn't the next Rebbe? I wasn't alive then. Okay. Um, but my sense of the matter is, is that it wasn't nearly as controversial as, like, there might have been some like internal controversy, like he wanted, to, but like, it, it seems to be that basically everybody, all the Hasidim was pretty quickly gravitated towards the rabbit and just like it was like a a foregone conclusion very quickly there wasn't a lot of debating yeah, yeah but the, see the thing is like this there's, there's a year with year there was a year to get the rabbit to officially agree had nothing to do with deciding between the two of them it took me a year to agree it took a year for the rabbit to agree like yeah but the he, he didn't want to do it. That's the whole okay. idea of okay. speaking. There's an, while we're on the topic, there's another rule about being a Hasidic Rebbe, is that if you want to be a Hasidic Rebbe, then you're disqualified from being a Hasidic Rebbe. Yeah, but like the right. year? That's actually short in terms of Hasidic Rebbe. What do they have to decide? What can you think about for a year like that? Um, are you willing to give up having any personal life? And I don't mean like in terms of your time. I mean having any personal life, like even internally. Like you don't get your own private relationship with God anymore. Mm. Yeah, it's just you mediating. No. At all. At all. Why not? Why? Because in order, in order to, we're going to talk about. In order for the head souls to really function as a head souls, they can't. Um, see their relationship with other Jews as secondary to their own personal relationship with God. Kind of think of it just like the way your brain functions, right? If your brain starts to think, well, you know, I don't know how much this, ha- like, you know, there's, there's my relationship with the hand, but then there's my, you can't do that. It has to be one cohesive whole. The, the, the brain can't start seeing the hand as a secondary thing. 
like that creates self-alienation. So in order to be a Hasidic Rebbe, you can't have your personal relationship with God and then secondarily, you know, you're like helping other people and stuff. So then how do you do mitzvot and things like that? It's, I mean, I'm not a Hasidic Rebbe, so I don't know, but it, it gets quite, it gets quite involved. So why would someone want to be that? No, that's my point. Nobody wants to be no, a Hasidic no, Rebbe. No, no, yeah, a, although, I mean, brother in law wanted to. Well, so that's why he's not. <laughs> that's like part of the reason, probably, why people didn't gravitate to him right away because, like, like you would. Yes, he wanted. To, he wanted. He wanted, he wanted, to, wanted, to, he wanted wow. to. We need a class. But wait, he okay. wanted to do it. But if he wa- he wanted to like give up his relationship with Hash- his personal relationship okay. with so, Hashem. While we're on the topic, why don't we do this? Okay. <laughs> there are several aspects to being a Hasidic rabbi. Okay. There is number one, working from the bottom up. There is the fact that you are in a position of social prominence. And that gives you power over the people. So many people aren't going to be a Hasidic Rebbe simply because they want to be in charge. Okay? This is not a foreign thing. This happens today. It's happened historically. That somebody, like, well, my father was a Rebbe, and I want to therefore take over, and I want to have, like, a bunch of people do what I say, and I get to be in charge, and that's all it is. Okay? There is another idea of a Hasidic Rebbe, which is that you have a community which used to have a real Hasidic Rebbe, and they don't have a real Hasidic Rebbe, but somebody needs to kind of hold the community together, and so it's kind of like a glorified communal leadership position. But the person doesn't really have any sense that they're doing any of the spiritual work of a Hasidic Rebbe, but like you have all these you know, thousands of people that have a cohesive community, and like somebody needs to hold it together, so like, that happens as well. Some rabbi now that's like yeah, there's, there's, so, so for instance, like there's a group of chassidim called the Tolner chassidim. The Tolner Rebbe, like, is the first one to tell you that he's like doesn't have like any of the classical like spiritual powers of a chassidic Rebbe, but it's like, like administrative purposes. Yeah, but it's like there's all these people, and he's like he's a he's a very he's a he's a, he's a very wise person, and he's a very God fearing person. He loves a lot of he loves Jews, and um, there's you know, and he you know, so he kind of functions like a you know like a. Uh, like a community rabbi, but on a much larger scale. Okay. Um, and you know, if those communities they can often have like certain rituals and practices associated with the rabbi, and they might continue to do those things. But it's much more kind of preaching tradition. The real idea of a Hasidic rabbi is that they function as these kind of head souls, which we're going to talk more about. Which means that not everyone that's what is it? Not everyone that's labeled a Hasidic rabbi is really this idea here. And then conversely, just because someone isn't labeled a Hasidic Rebbe, like use, for example, an uncontroversial example, the Baba Sali was not called a Hasidic Rebbe, being that it was Sephardi and Hasidic Rebbe is like an Ashkenazic tradition, but functioned in the exact same capacity. Okay. So it's like, I'm, I'm going to cheat a little bit. And do, do you, everyone understands that somebody might want to be the rabbi of a synagogue because that gives them power and authority, nothing to do with God. Okay. Everyone can understand someone might want to be the rabbi of a synagogue because they feel a calling to help people? Yeah. Okay. But that also gives them... And one of the key differences between those two things, a person who feels the calling also has a certain hesitancy because, like, they know their own limitations. They know that, like, they're not a prophet, right? Okay. And then there's, like, let's say someone was a prophet. That's a whole different category altogether. Okay. A real chassidic rabbi... Hat is more like in the category of a prophet. It's a whole different thing altogether. But there are many people who are who hold titles and social positions like Hasidic Rebbe, either because they just want power that exists. It's existed historically, or alternatively, 
they don't want power, but they, they feel that people are counting on them and need them and someone has to rise to the occasion. And so they, you know, try and do the best they can to fill the legacy of their father or grandfather to keep the community together and intact. Okay. Does that breakdown make somewhat sense? Okay. Now, I want to be very clear. Obviously, everybody can have their opinions about who's who. And those arguments generally don't go anywhere because there's a lot of, you know, biases and tribalism going into that. So that's why I don't like to, like, venture my personal opinions about things. Yeah. Could there be a rabbi who's not, or who was not in, like, the chain of Yeah, family? for sure. For sure. For sure. I mean, I mean the first, I mean, the Baal Shem Tov success, the Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov disciples were not his descendants, and even the one who succeeded in running the, the movement after the Baal Shem Tov was not his son. Um, and it's not necessarily the case that it has to be um, through lineage. Um, in fact, it's happened in, in Chabad, the, the, the second Rebbe's son just didn't succeed him. Like, um, the Tzavach the, the, the was his son-in-law and nephew. Oh, but he had a son. He had a son. And nephew. What the? Yeah. Well, Yes. In Judaism, marrying cousins is considered a perfectly acceptable thing to do. Mm-hmm. Doing it over too many generations can run into problems, but there's nothing like You have to space it out. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so. Why didn't the son do it? Um, basically because the Samach Tzedek was personally raised by the Alter Rebbe, and so. It was like obvious to everyone other than the Tzemachzedek, like you're going to be number three. Like there's the Alter Rebbe, and then there's the, the Alter Rebbe was the second, was the, was the Alter Rebbe's son. And then the Alter Rebbe personally raised this grandson as his own son. Um, he was actually the one who arranged the marriage between the cousins. And... Okay. So. Vision of like you two are going to be good together? No, like he went to his son. He went, this is actually a funny story. <laughs> We're on the topic of going on digressions. <laughs> the the, the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, so he, he goes to his son, the Mithra, but we don't have a picture of, but that's it. Why don't we have a picture of him? Well, in general, Jews don't have pictures of them historically. Wait, was he the of those two specifically? No. No, we just, there's no picture of him. He was arrested, and the story goes that when, when he was arrested, because that's like the thing that happens to Hasidic Rebbe they get arrested, um, is that the Russian government found a portrait on file of him, and, and they, but they were just mistaken because he looked so much like his father. So apparently he looked like his father at altar, and so they just didn't make another portrait because they thought it was him. That's the story. I don't know if it's true. Anyway, so he was, so he, so, so the, the altar becomes his son, the Mithra Rebbe, and says, I have a great idea for for your daughter, Chaimushka. And the Mithra Rebbe says, who? And he says, your nephew, my grandson, future Tzemach Tzedek. And the Mithra Rebbe says, I think this is a bad idea. And the altar Rebbe says, why? And he says, look outside. And so they both look outside, and in the courtyard, and this is like the shtetl in the middle of, you know, about, not Lyazhnitz, like some little hamlet in the middle of white Russia. So people just, you know, the kids just play outside. And there's the nine-year-old future Tzemach Tzedek playing with his friends. Now, the game they were playing is that there was a child tied up, um, being dragged along by all the other kids <laughs> with a rope. And who was the ringleader? <laughs> and the Mitzler Rebbe, who was about as, as, as a sincere, serious person as you could possibly imagine, is like, that's why. 
They do not. <laughs> and so they. Yeah, that's why I kind of asked about how they were preschool. Yeah, actually, different, different. Uh, anyway, so then, so the Alter calls in the Tzemach Tzedek, who's nine at this point, and says to him, I want you to go study some Talmud for a half hour, and then I'm going to test you on it. And he wanted him to study the Talmud with all of the major commentators. Um, and he said, I want you to cover this much ground and give you a half hour. Um, and that's the kind of thing that like a, a good, serious Talmudic scholar, Shiva Bachar, of like, the age of like 1920 would probably take them like three or four hours to do. And he gave him a half hour to do it when he was nine. So the Tzemach Sadek goes. And then 10 minutes later, the, the Mitzlerba tells his father, he says, look outside. And the Tzemach Sadek is out there playing with his friends. And the Alterba calls him in and tests him on the Talmud. And he knows it perfectly. And then he rebukes him and says, I told you to study for a half hour, not for 10 minutes. It doesn't matter that you finished the amount of time within 10 minutes. If you're supposed to study for the full half hour, you have to study for the full half hour. And, um, but in the end, he was able to convince his son to agree to the marriage. And so they got married. But that was the... Did he give any like, justification other than that it's good? Yeah, accepted the rebuke. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, like, did he, did he, the altar rebbe, like, did maybe? I only know what I know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know more than that. But so, anyway, Hasidic rebbes. So, just to summarize, in every so another way, way of thinking this is every generation there's a little microcosm of all of Jewish history, and just like in Jewish history we have the forefathers, the patriarchs, the matriarchs, etc. So too we have that within every generation. Okay, what, what does that mean then? Let's just run through this quickly. The next part is what gets more interesting. That would mean that, what were the four things that we said about the head souls and the foot souls? Is that if you cut, separate them, who dies? The foot. If, where, who, where do the instructions flow from the head to the foot? Who actually is doing the experiencing? The head. And where does the foot get its real value from? It's connection to the head. Well, then what would that mean about all the souls of any generation? That all of, right, that their connection is not, so it's not just that our connection to God is mediated through the patriarchs and Moshe, it's actually therefore mediated on another level through the heads of that generation. The same thing that would apply, yeah. Did we say the same thing applies to non-Jews? No, this is only about godly souls of Jews. It made one mention at the end of chapter one, and that's the rest of it. That's it. So we don't know anything, nor should we assume there's any kind of writing. Right. I mean, if you want more stuff, I gave you like the book that you could write. But yeah. Because the Tanya is speaking about the relationship the Jews have with God. So the non-Jews only show up parenthetically, and usually just a foil of the counterpoint like in chapter one. That's about it. Yeah. Um, so how do people who don't have Hasidic rabbis... Like, we like, will talk about that later in chapter two. Oh, really? Like I am this? pre, yeah, I'm prefiguring certain things. Later in chapter two, he's going to talk about that. Okay. Okay. What about the third point? How does a Hasidic Rebbe experience? Ah. So, I will tell you a great Hasidic custom. There's a great Hasidic custom, which is that you're supposed to eat kugel. You've heard of kugel? Mm-hmm. It's a Hasidic custom. When do you have to eat The Rebbe's kugel. Wait, sorry? Like no, just whatever kugel the Rebbe ate from. Okay. Oh, like after oh, him. That he right. ate from. That he ate from. Oh, not oh, nowadays. Yeah. That's weird, right? Wait, what? <laughs> right, what? There's leftovers. There's leftovers. 
Yeah. Yep. It's a metaphor. No, this is quite literal. <laughs> like, you don't understand. People would travel, like, weeks to go to the Balshemto so that they could, like, maybe, like, eat the leftover fish of the Balshemto or his cocoa. really gross. It is. Why, why would such a practice exist? Um, okay, so I'm going to tell you. Yeah, okay. So the first thing to know is that the first thing to know is that there's a lot of stuff in Judaism that's weird because we haven't because I mean, there's a lot of stuff in Judaism that's weird. But but there's but there's but there's, there, there's stuff that's there's stuff that's weird because because Judaism is really supposed to be practiced with a king and a temple and a whole thing and we're like you know in exile. Okay. So in the temple there's a practice of bringing sacrifices. Not weird. It's not weird now. Who eats from the sacrifice? So the, there's an exception, but most sacrifices the Kohanim would eat from the sacrifice. Okay. And what happens when the Kohen eats from the sacrifice? So the way it's put in the Talmud is that the Kohen eats and the person who brought the sacrifice's soul is atoned or cleansed. So what does that mean? The Kohen eating from the sacrifice somehow has an effect on your soul. And some sacrifices you actually get to eat the, the, the Kohen eats part and then you eat part. And what this idea means is that the idea of just like socially sharing food as a way of bringing people together, a tzaddik can use the idea of eating food and then sharing it with you to connect and convey their experiences of God to you. And so it was not really about eating the kugel or eating the leftover fish. But if you eat the kugel or the leftover fish, then what would happen? Right, you can then, and therefore their experiences of God get infused into your soul, and you get to experience God through your own soul. Now, right, so it's not really, it's not really about the food per se. The food is just a means of transferring, of connecting the souls. So it could be any food. Then. It could be any food, right? What was the Rebbe's particular choice of food that the Rebbe liked to do this with? Kugel. No, Lubavitcher Rebbe generally did it, generally did it with. Wine left over from Havdalah. Oh, that's why everyone has those Yeah, ah. and and during Tishrei he would hand out honey cake. Or, but the Rebbe's preferred method of all was to just not actually use food, but to use the mitzvah of tzedakah. So the Rebbe used to hand out for the same purpose. Okay, so there's this this idea of of, of so this idea of that 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 going and the, going and experiencing and connecting. Um, and different Rebbe's developed different practices and rituals and customs and cultures around that whole thing. Which is why you have these weird customs like, I don't know, has anyone ever seen a tish? Yeah. A tish is basically where there's a, there's a, 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 a Rebbe sitting at a table, a table in Yiddish is called a tish, and there's a bunch of chassidim sitting around, and generally they don't understand what the Rebbe is saying. And he says some stuff, or he doesn't say some stuff, and he eats some food. And then at some point the chassidim like, grab the plate of food and like distribute it out to everybody. Now, in theory, if you have someone who's like a head soul and they've infused something in the food, a way of connecting to them, then it strengthens that connection. It's kind of like um, using back the metaphor of like the head and the foot. If you want the head and the foot to be connected, you want healthy um, nerves, right? And so God forbid a nerve is like severed or something, it's not gonna work so well. So you want things to strengthen it. And so that's where these practices come from. Now, does that mean every time you see somebody with a strimal sitting around and like people grabbing their kugel, that means that that's what's happening? No, it doesn't mean that. But that's where these practices come from, yeah. 
Okay. Wait, now. About <laughs> how the rabbis experience our lives. Oh, because they 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 are. I explained the other way how how yeah, our experiences of God are coming from them. Yeah, but that's but not supposedly Right. Well, so, but remember, like if you're if you're if you're, if you're all healthy, then the experiences of the head of the foot actually get projected into the foot. Now, again, there's a breakdown because the foot is not a sentient being. But like, think about it. When you experience your hand, it's not, when you experience your hand, even though the experience is happening in the head, it gets projected onto the hand, right? So you can like, you feel like, this is weird, like mm-hmm. put your hand on the table, right? Can you feel the table, the smoothness and coldness of the table against your hand? Yes. Okay, but you're f- experiencing it here, but your mind is projecting it onto here. Right. So what the Rebbe infuses into the food is something we already experience? No, it strengthens the experience. It's a way of, it's way of amplifying. It's trippy. But where is the part where he, like, like, where is the like, that's... Oh, the other way. That would be, that would be, um, that would be, like, why would someone go to a Rebbe and help the, have the Rebbe, like, give them advice? Well, what's the logic of that? So that's one thing, but the other thing is that the Rebbe is actually tapped into the person. The Rebbe experiences the person more fully than the person experiences themselves. What? Right. So there's, there's like a few answers you give. One answer is that the Rebbe is very wise. He has a lot of experience, studied a lot of Torah. A deeper answer you give is that the Rebbe is prophetic. But the real ultimate answer is that the Rebbe experiences the other Jew as part of himself. Which is why, in order for a Rebbe to really give an answer, he has to find within his own experience what correlates to that Jew's experience. There's like a really weird story. Do you want to hear a weird story? Yeah. Of course. Okay. Um, but you have to turn off the recording. <laughs> yes. And we'll be back.